You've been listening to Star Talk Radio, brought to you in part by the National Science Foundation. Tune in next week for the second half of our live show, recorded December 2011 at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Until then, as always, keep looking. WOMCHD3 Detroit, KMPSHD3 Seattle, WBMXHD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 The I'm Thankful Network explores the positive. Join host Sue Lundquist Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time, empowering women, empowering lives. The I'm Thankful Network on New Sky Radio. Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, the Dr. Pat Show is alive with a distinctive blend of interviews with a mix of uplifting and intelligent news, educational and practical information. Get in the know. Following Dr. Pat, join host Laura Lee for Laura Lee's Spirit Salon. Contact your dearly departed spirit guides and angels to find answers, closure, guidance, insight, revelations, and prophecy regarding matters of the heart by contacting the other side through acclaimed medium Laura Lee. You are not alone. Batter up. Life's a game. Win. Call and get advice from today's top coaches that are here to help you win the game of life. The Coach Me Network is live starting at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Call in early. The lines are hot. 248-545-7685. Instant feedback at NewSkyRadio.com. NewSkyRadio. NewSkyRadio.com. New Horizons. No Boundaries. Powered by CBS, Yahoo, and Radio.com. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. How does a real parapsychologist, as opposed to a self-appointed expert or hobbyist, investigate ghosts? Is it wise or even safe to use seances or Ouija boards? How much follow-up follow follow is required on each case as opposed to follow-up? Oh, dear. Hello there, and welcome to the 314th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So let's get right to our guest. We're pleased to have Dr. Andrew Nichols back with us this evening. Dr. Nichols is a psychologist, parapsychologist, and an investigator of paranormal phenomena. He is a member of the American Psychological Association, the Parapsychological Association, and the Society for Psychological Hypnosis. He has been a psychology professor for many years and is adjunct faculty uh, at uh, Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida. During his 30-year career, Dr. Nichols has investigated more than 600 reported cases of ghosts, hauntings, and poltergeists and conducted studies in telepathy, precognition, and paranormal dream experiences. He has written numerous articles on paranormal experiences for popular magazines, and his papers on the paranormal have been published in a number of scientific journals. Professor Nichols has <clears throat> presented lectures and workshops on paranormal topics at colleges and conferences throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe. He is the author of Ghost Detective, Adventures of a Parapsychologist, and his work has been featured in many books on paranormal subjects. As a media consultant, he has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Japan, including Unsolved Mysteries, 48 Hours Inside America's Courts, and, and a, uh, rec- has uh, been a recurring guest on NBC's The Other Side. Several television specials have featured Dr. Nichols' work. He has investigated alleged poltergeist disturbances for government agencies and law enforcement, including the U.S. Army, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and the Daytona Beach Police Department. 
1999, he was co-recipient of a grant to study haunting and poltergeist cases, the first grant of its kind in the history of psychical research. For the last appearance... Uh, on our show, see show number 286, October 23rd, 2011, Investigating Poltergeist, on our podcast page at BehindTheParanormal.com. And Dr. Nichols' own website is www.parapsychologylab.com. Dr. Nichols, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. Oh, well, that's a very... Oh, thank you very much. So, let's start at square one. According to your findings, what is a ghost? Well, it's a difficult question to answer because I don't think that uh, there's only one type of ghost. I think the evidence is, is pretty strong that there are more than one type of ghosts. Uh, for example, uh, we have when you eliminate fraudulent types of hauntings, uh, fraudulent ghosts and delusional ghosts, that is, based on a false belief uh, or imagination or sometimes even mental illness, then you're left with the genuinely paranormal types. But even among those, there are at least several different types. And I would say the most important ones, the most commonly experienced genuinely paranormal ghosts, are what I would call imprint hauntings or residue hauntings is a term that's commonly used today in which you basically have a type of psychic residue. In other words, it's not an intelligent, interactive, spiritual being, but rather just an imprint or a type of recording of some emotionally charged past event. And uh, I've found that that's the most common type of, uh, of haunting of the genuinely paranormal type. And then you also have what I call thought form hauntings or paramental hauntings. And these are hauntings that are in, they're similar to poltergeists because they're generally generated by the people who actually live in the house. In other words, many people subconsciously haunt their own houses. They, they create an artificial ghost, basically, subconsciously and project it into the environment using ESP and psychokinesis, using their psychic abilities, but without realizing that they're doing it. So they're essentially generating the ghost themselves. And a poltergeist is a variation of that, of that type of haunting. And then finally, you have the genuine hauntings. That is, these appear to be actual spirits or an actual interactive uh, entity, a non-corporeal entity, person, a being without a body, basically. And those are the rarest cases, but they do exist. So those, those cover the major categories. How do you decide which cases to investigate? Well, I start out normally with uh, a contact, as most investigators do. The person will contact me either by telephone, by letter, or by email. And so I begin with an, an informal type of um, interview process where I ask the person to, to describe the events in as much detail as possible. Uh, I really don't even even proceed with a case until I've gotten a complete written uh, account of the of the case as much as possible that they can remember, uh, including dates, including the names of witnesses and contact information for other witnesses. And uh, I make them send me that either by email or by, by mail uh, before I'll even proceed with a case. And I've found that that actually eliminates a lot of people because it's, uh, it's always amazing to me that people will contact me uh, and insist that they're they're experiencing a really uh, intense haunting situation, and they desperately need my help. Uh, but then when I tell them they actually have to do some work and sit down and, and write <laughs> this stuff out, it's amazing how quickly it suddenly becomes less important uh, for me to be involved. And so I think that's you know that's a good uh, preliminary indicator of how serious they are about this, 
uh, is are they willing to do the do the work to actually document it? And so I want to see that documentation first and foremost. And secondly, in, although in the early years uh, I was investigating pretty much any case I could get, but for the last, uh, more than the last decade, basically I don't take a case uh, unless it, there are independent witnesses involved. In other words, if, there, if there's only one or two people within a family unit, I generally will not take the case. I'll refer it to somebody else. So I want a case where, where I have independent corroboration, if at all possible. And that's not always possible, and I do make some exceptions. It depends on how intense the case appears to be and how desperate the people appear to be. But as a general rule, I prefer to take cases that have uh, independent corroboration. So that's, you know, that's, uh, and of course, I do try to, to rule out as much as possible, as, as much as I can through email or through, uh, normally I'll progress from email or regular mail to a telephone interview, which is pretty extensive. And during that interview, I'll try to ask them questions which would indicate to me whether they're likely to be suffering from any actual mental disorder, psychological disorder, and try to rule that out as well. So that's, that's the initial process that I go through in every case before I would ever consider making an actual house call. Okay, so once you, well, I'm sure you, you'll agree that there is no typical investigation, but what is your basic procedure uh, once you've decided to proceed with the case? Well, once I've, again, once I've gone through the preliminary investigation, which involves extensive interviews, and, and if, again, if there are additional corroborative witnesses outside of the family, I will contact those people and I'll interview them as well and find out exactly what they think is going on. Um, if, if there's a person in the family, and, and quite frequently I find that there is, often the husband is the person who doesn't really think anything is going on. Mm. And, uh, and so I want to interview that person too and, and get their perspective because they're living in the household. You know, what, what is it that you think is going on and why do you think this is happening? And so I want to get perspectives from as many people as I can. Once I decide to actually go to the to the location and and make a um, an on-site investigation, then the first thing I'm going to do is try to reenact as as much as possible several of the of the more intense experiences. And I'll always ask them in my preliminary interview because sometimes there'll be many many different uh, individual events that take place. So instead of trying to go through all of the events, I do want them to document all the events when they when they send me the written. Uh, statement, but instead of going through all of the events in terms of reenactment, I'll ask them to pick the very first event and the very most recent event and the, the event that was the most intense, the one that they feel that was the scariest or the most the most uh, remarkable or astounding event. And I'll take those three events and basically ask the family to reenact it for me. In other words, where were you standing? What were you doing? And try to get an idea of what could have what, what could have happened. And of course, all this time, I'm I'm trying to make sure that there is uh, not likely to be a normal explanation for any of this. You know, reflections of automobile headlights and you know that sort of thing. You know, heat uh, central heating units causing floorboards to expand to create the sound of footsteps. All of these things I found at one time or another. So I'm always looking to try to eliminate natural explanations uh, before I proceed to any paranormal assumption at all. And then, of course, I'm also going to be taking some, some instrumental readings to find out if there are any unusual energetic effects 
present in the location, you know, electromagnetic effects, uh, ion concentrations, that type of thing. So those, those are among the, the things that I do in the, uh, in the early stages of an investigation to try to determine whether it's likely to be genuinely paranormal or not. You mentioned that you try to be solitary in, well, I don't know if that's the right word, but try to be by yourself on most of these cases. But if you have to work with people, do you work in small numbers, large numbers, like certain types of people? Uh, how does it work? Uh, I think the smaller, the smaller the group, the better. And uh, as I said, certainly, especially in recent years, uh, I tend to investigate most of the cases uh, alone. And uh, that, uh, at least initially. Now, I may bring in other people later on as needed, other specialists or technicians. You know, if I want to use more sophisticated equipment, for example, um, telemetry units and that type of thing, then I'll bring in a technician that's much more familiar with that equipment than I am. I'm not terribly electronically proficient, I'm afraid. So <clears throat> when you get beyond the basic handheld meters, then, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of out of, my, out of my range of expertise. So I will bring in somebody else for that. Sometimes I'll bring in an ad- uh, additional counseling personnel, particularly if there is a female involved. I might bring in a female counselor if they feel more comfortable talking to an individual like that. Sometimes I'll bring in clergy, although as a general rule I don't do that unless the family specifically requests it or unless I think that there's a strong religious component to, to this particular case. So I will bring in other people as needed. But as a general rule, I think the smaller the group of people, the better, because the, the more people you have involved with a case, the more confusing it is, the more it muddies the waters. I think in the, you know, these events, paranormal events, take place within the context of a, of, of a particular family dynamic which is often a very delicately balanced thing. And if you start bringing a lot of other people into the environment, then you're going to disrupt that dynamic. So the best thing to do is to, is to keep it as low-key as possible and to try not to disrupt the interpersonal dynamics. I think when you do that, you have a much greater chance of actually witnessing some of the paranormal phenomena take place and uh, much less chance of someone doing something deliberately, hoaxing, for example, because there's so much confusion with people walking around through the different rooms that you can't keep track of everyone. So as a general rule, I think the fewer people involved with an investigation, the better. Okay, so if the case involves a house, the first factor that we look at are the people that live there. You, you sort of touched upon this uh, on, your, on the last question, but how do you deal with the people in the house? Well, as carefully as I can, of course. Um, I certainly try to be uh, as open to their experience as I possibly can. I try not to, to uh, impose any particular interpretation of the events on them if I can avoid it, unless I think it's absolutely necessary. For example, if they're, if they're terribly frightened or experiencing a lot of fear based on misperceptions of, uh, of events or, or perhaps based on beliefs uh, from information they've gleaned from popular television shows, popular novels, and that sort of thing. So I may try to reframe their belief system if that's the case. But otherwise, I try to basically let them lead the way. In other words, it's a very, it's a very uh, a client-centered approach, very much like uh, humanistic forms of counseling, where the, the individuals involved basically lead the way. They're guiding me. 
I want to find out what they think is going on. I don't want to impose my belief system on them. I want to find out what they think is going on because that's directly related to the phenomena in most cases. So I want to know what their belief system is, and most of the time they've already integrated these experiences into their belief system. In other words, you know, it's it's actually quite rare that someone calls you in to tell you what what it is. Most of the time, these folks, in my experience, have already decided what it is. Yeah, that's uh, right. And so they really are just looking for someone to endorse their belief system or corroborate their belief system, or in some cases to get rid of it. But it's very rare that they actually want. I mean, they may say they want me to tell them what it is, but they really <laughs> don't. Most of the time, they've already made up their mind what it is. And so I want to find out what it is they've made up their minds about, you know, and why. And so I think it's very important to spend a lot of time just talking to the family members about what they've experienced and what they what they believe is going on, because that is uh, crucial to understanding the case. So does your investigation take in the surrounding area as well as the house and the property? Sometimes it does. For example, I, d- I definitely will interview neighbors under certain circumstances. Again, it depends on the individual case. In some cases, the neighbors have already become involved. In some cases, the media has already become involved. And once again, that tends to disrupt the dynamic of the case. Tell us so, about it. And, you know, and so I prefer cases in which that's not the case, but I don't always have that option. Now, it may have already occurred by the time I get there. So if the, if the neighbors are already uh, aware of what's going on, then I may interview the neighbors. But, of course, if the, um, if the clients are uh, trying to keep this uh, a secret and trying not to let this uh, get out to the neighbors, then I certainly wouldn't do that you know, without their approval. But sometimes I will. Sometimes if uh, law enforcement has been involved, for example, um, then I may interview law enforcement personnel or anyone else that I think might be pertinent to the particular case. Okay. But quite frequently, the cases that I work with, uh, the individuals don't want anyone else to become involved if they can avoid it, and and in fact are quite wary of uh, involvement of of any outsiders. And and those typically are the cases that I like because not only have they be, been less disrupted by these outside influences, but in addition, in my experience, they're more likely to be genuine cases if the people are actively shunning publicity or involvement of other people. Okay. Uh, well, you're coming up on a break right now. You're listening to Behind the uh, excuse me Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com. Our guest, Dr. Andrew Nichols. And we'll be right back after a short break, so stay with us.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. NewSkyRadio.com. Believe. Well, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. And our guest this evening is Dr. Andrew Nichols, well-known parapsychologist, psychologist, and a 30-year veteran of paranormal research. And now it's my turn to ask some questions. <laughs> All right. Okay. How much time do you spend? Uh, and we said there's no typical case, uh, Andrew, but how much time do you generally spend on a case? You know, it's very difficult to say because it varies widely from case to case. I mean, sometimes... I conclude, I mean, most of the time I can eliminate the cases that involve fraud or delusion before I ever make a home visit. But every once in a while, that's not the case. Somebody fools me, and I'm able to get there, and then I realize after I've arrived that you know, this is a question of, of uh, mental disorder or this is a question of someone who's attention-seeking and so on. And in those cases, I'll wrap it up in one afternoon. Um, on the other hand, I have other cases probably that on, on average I'll spend two or three days uh, in terms of, uh, of making actual visits. The research component um, takes considerably longer, several weeks. But I've, I've certainly spent, you know, six months on a case. I have one case that's been kind of an ongoing experimental case here in Florida that I've been investigating for 15 years. It's mm-hmm. an ongoing haunting. It's kind of an open experiment. So uh, it varies it varies fairly radically, but I'd say on average a couple of weeks per case. Okay. I hear you. Our, our usual is two years. Uh, 15 years, you got you have us beat there. Uh, our longest has been 10 years, um, unless you count, I suppose, the Lost Village. Uh, uh, yeah, well, that, that I don't know. If you well, know. anyway. Okay, no, all right. Uh, because, uh, I don't know, I think the uh, the more you research, the more you can find, and maybe that's, I don't know, why I've come to such different conclusions in some cases than you have. But, uh, you know, this is about you. So what sort of questions... Do you ask the people, you know, obviously aside from uh, medical history or what medications they might be on or this or that or their belief system, what sort of what sorts of questions do you do you ask that um, might be different from what other what the hobbyists might ask? Well, of course, I'm very interested in the concept of, of focal individuals, of agents or focal focal persons, because I do believe that no psychic phenomena takes place without one or more focal persons in the environment. So a lot of my questions are designed to determine um, who this individual might be within the family. And it's usually one person, but sometimes it's two within a family unit. Uh, Occasionally, it seems to be an entire family, but uh, most of the time it's one particular individual. And usually the individual is female, but not always. So I, I do try to gear a lot of my questions to finding out, you know, who is present when these things take place. Um, because in most cases, there's one person that's always present when these things take place, but that's not always the case. And again, it depends on what type of haunting or what type of disturbance you're dealing with as well. So those are some of the, the questions that I ask to try to narrow that down, and I try to do that in such a way so that the family doesn't really catch on to what I'm trying to do, because I don't want to focus unpleasant attention on a particular person in the family, particularly if it's a if it's a minor, uh, which sometimes happens. I don't want them to start blaming the individual, in other words, which, which can sometimes happen. But, again, most of the time these families are, are sophisticated enough so that they've already pretty much decided that there's one person that seems to be involved in this. 
And this is true not as much for hauntings as it is for poltergeist cases, but it's also true in hauntings to a large extent. I don't, unlike many parapsychologists, I don't make a, a sharp distinction between haunting and poltergeist cases. I think that they occur along a continuum, and there are many cases that involve elements of, uh, of each one. And, of course, I always ask them questions about whether they have made any attempt. I want to I test their critical thinking skills a little bit. Have they made any attempt to determine whether there could be a natural cause or a non-paranormal cause for these mm -hmm. events? And, uh, you know, if they have, that's a very good sign. You know, if they said, well, you know, we thought about it might be this or it might be reflections of automobile headlights or whatever, you know, that shows me that they're thinking about it in a critical way rather than just automatically embracing a supernatural explanation. And so that's always encouraging when I get that type of response. So those are among the questions that I tend to ask. Uh, in our investigation, sometimes we, we often, or we actually often, we find that there's one particular member of the family, as you say, who may be the, uh, uh, the food source, as we would put it. And this person often is not present at the interview because, uh, the initial interview, because he or she is isolated from the family or refuses to attend or, or smells, a, you know, something in the air that might, you know, get them sort of having to change their lifestyle somehow, or something like this. What do you do when you find a member of the family who was isolated and will not assist you? Well, I mean, obviously I don't have any power to force them to assist me, and that can be a real problem if that individual is, in fact, a focal person. Uh, I'll try to approach that individual in a very non-confrontational way and try to enlist their cooperation as much as I can, but, of course, if they insist that they don't want to be involved then you know there's really nothing i can do about it and most of the time that's uh, that's pretty much the end of the case at that point because if you don't have the cooperation of the primary people involved in the case then i don't see how you're going to be able to resolve it so it it seems to me that that's that's one of the questions that i would ask right up front you know is everybody on board with this now sure. occasionally you do get again it's quite often and I say often, but it really doesn't happen that often. But when it does happen, it's usually the, the adult male member of the family that refuses to participate and basically may say, you know, I really just don't want to be around when any of this is taking place. But this is still a person that I want to talk to. Mm -hmm. most, most of the time I will. I'll find a way to do a, a private one-on-one -on -one interview with that person because I want to find out what they're thinking. And uh, even if they're not going to be actively involved in the investigation, I still want their perspective and their point of view. And I want to make sure that at least they're, they're cooperative to the extent that it's okay with them that I'm involved in this case. Because, again, I don't want to be involved in a case where members of the family don't want me there other than minors. You know, again, I don't give minors the same weight of, of uh, authority as I do the, the adults in the case. Really? No, okay. because I mean they're minors. You know, they basically now that you know, I'm not going to if uh, if there's a minor involved who doesn't want me to be there, that doesn't mean that I necessarily won't come. But if one of the adults uh, in the environment doesn't want me to be there, then I probably wouldn't come. If that okay, well we'll get back to that. But uh, on the matter of determining psychiatric or psychological factors involved here, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot because we, we have been doing uh, a series of shows on our other, on our local station here, uh, having to do with exorcism and possession, and my own experience with it as a seminary student and assisting with these things. Uh, the let me put this to you. Uh, do you consider the possibility of something that, that 
I found many years ago that uh, I, I believe I found anyway, uh, you know, not not having your credentials in psychology, obviously, uh, that sometimes paranormal and psychiatric factors can be intermixed. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. In, in can you fact, talk a little bit about it's that? One of, it's one of my theories that does not endear me to my colleagues. Uh, yeah, well, no, I, I, I honestly believe that uh, that uncontrolled ESP or mediumistic ability. Um, is responsible for a number of psychiatric illnesses, particularly of the psychotic and dissociative type, yeah. you know, like schizophrenia, multiple personality, and so on. In fact, if you look at the uh, the uh, treatment of such disorders in Brazil, in the spiritistic community, which is closely allied with the psychiatric community in Brazil, you find that their their uh, success rate for the treatment of schizophrenia is much higher than ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, av- the average schizophrenic actually is cured within two years in in brazil and in our country it's re, it's regarded as a lifetime illness without cure so that's uh... And, and the main reason is because they regard it quite frequently as a form of possession and they treat it as such with the assistance and, and cooperation of the psychiatric community so i definitely believe that that's a factor in in many cases of mental illness but i also believe there's such a thing as just standard mental illness depression and oh soul. sure sure yeah well what we particularly run into the issue of, of uh, schizophrenia because uh particularly with the dissociative identity syndrome which i ran into several times as a grad student uh and i'm sure you've run to it obviously as a psychologist many yeah. times um it, it just would strike me you know i wonder if and this came up the last time we talked are these people seeing actual worlds that are really there and, and cannot balance that with their own identity or, or sense of self-reference or whatever it may be and therefore have become unbalanced in their lives in this conscious world? Or is it just some sort of chemical imbalance? Or is it both? Well, I, don't, I don't buy the chemical imbalance hypothesis at all. In yeah. fact, I decry that hypothesis in, my, in the courses I teach on abnormal psychology because I just don't think... The evidence supports that, which isn't to say that there aren't chemical imbalances associated with psychiatric syndromes. There are, but the old scientific adage is true that correlation doesn't equal causation. You know, just because something is correlated doesn't mean that's the cause of it. And I don't think there's any good evidence that's the cause of it, even though that is the uh, the contemporary view in in Western psychiatry that that is the cause. So I agree with you completely. I think that many cases of schizophrenia are, in fact, uh, uncontrolled psychic experience uh, up to and including possession, but not necessarily possession. I think that the uh, you know the schizophrenic uh, basically drowns in the same sea that the psychic swims in. Mm. That's well put. Uh, and I've actually addressed groups of psychiatrists on several occasions on this matter, and they they you know naturally when you're addressing them in a group, they 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 have uh, they're upset, but individually they'll say maybe you're right. Well, we have to wrap now for another break, and we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with CBS on CBS News Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com, with our guest Dr. Andrew Nichols. Stay with us. Take CBS Radio The Sky with you wherever you go. Be sure to download the Radio.com app today from your mobile marketplace. And when you really want to know more, 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 be sure to visit NewSkyRadio.com. Get in deep with exclusive articles and Sky News. Get your weekly horoscope and the inside scoop on host events. Radio.com and NewSkyRadio.com. Stay connected.
Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. And we're back with our guest, Dr. Andrew Nichols, and we're having a fascinating conversation about uh, all things paranormal, particularly ghosts and how we investigate these things. Now, let me ask you, Doctor, uh, how, how much technology do you use? Because we're kind of skeptical about some of that. I'm very skeptical about a lot of it, and uh, and frankly, I don't use nearly as much. It's interesting. I've, I've my trajectory has taken me through the gamut because many of the uh, technological devices that are used by the the ghost hunters on television and various other uh, amateur groups were were initially pioneered by parapsychologists, and so we were using these things long before they were. Sure. Uh, but but what we found is that by and large, they don't give us much much information that's very useful um you know magnetometers can be useful uh, that's as emf detectors for looking for uh localized magnetic field disturbances that might create psychological effects and so on uh likewise ion counters but um but most of the time things like uh thermovision cameras infrared thermography uh we use that extensively even back in the day when these things were big heavy bulky units that you had to you had to load with liquid nitrogen to use them oh, uh, and carry them around um you know they make pretty pictures but they really don't tell us very much about the paranormal so i use very little technology anymore everything you know what i use the instrumentation that i use i carry in a briefcase and really don't find you know we have developed at one point um, the American Institute of Parapsychology had a van that used to be used on Miami Vice. We actually purchased this this surveillance van, and we had it equipped with all sorts of equipment, and we had telemetry devices and, and so forth. And uh, for all of this collective uh, equipment, we got very little usable data. So ultimately, we sold the van. <laughs> you know, we still have most of the equipment, but we very rarely use it. So I'm pretty skeptical of the of the results obtained by uh, technological methods. I think I learn a lot more from interviewing witnesses and from using questionnaires. I've acquired a lot more valid data, in my opinion, than with all the equipment that we ever used. Oh, I certainly certainly agree. Uh, I know that a lot of... Uh, well, sometimes, though, I, I will look in the mirror and I say, okay, I started out seat of the pants, 1970, 71. We didn't have any of these things, at least not readily available to the public, so to speak. And in the church, they certainly weren't used. And, uh, you know, we're lucky, you're lucky if you had a tape recorder and a camera, which is pretty much what I started with. And that was quite interesting, uh, nevertheless. But it was a matter, too, of, um, of uh, what these things were for. Like today, you know, you have, if you have a thermal camera, I use it to determine where my windows are leaking, you know. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that sort for. of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but on the other hand, I'll sometimes think, you know, there, we, our belief at this end is that we're dealing with actual physical 
beings in parallel worlds. Now, I know we've discussed this before, and you know, you're open-minded to it, but you have other points of view as well. That's, that's fine, because I, I don't like to be didactic about these things, especially when you have a PhD and I don't. But, <laughs> but this, this has been uh, our experience. And, and I say to myself, well, gee, maybe there, there's certainly, if this is the case, there would be physical evidence when these worlds, as it were, overlap, as some physicists say that they can. And... Uh, Oh my gosh! Another break already. Well, not not quite. Anyway, uh, th- this is um, so. We do find things um, that it's very difficult with the equipment that we ha- that we don't have to determine uh, where it came from. For example, uh, unless it's something as obvious as a, as a coin that I have had for years from a uh, a, a country that never existed. Uh, it comes and goes. I haven't seen it now for about three years. But I might walk into my back room. It somehow keeps appearing in my uh, tool room back here. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, th- things of that kind. I suppose it, that's as, as elusive as UFO landing evidence, things of that kind. So I think that, that there is some physical component uh, to these things, maybe more than just a component. So uh, I'm not entirely turned off by technology. But in, for the most part, I don't think it has much use. And, and, and this, let me bounce this off you. When I first was, um, well, it was the early 1990s, and I was the editor of the local newspaper. I think once I was thrown out of the seminary for being involved in the paranormal, I figured, gee, I don't have to be so secretive. But then I ended up a journalist, and the last thing you want people to think is that the editor of the local newspaper is a ghost hunter. So That's I still true. had to shut up. So along comes an engineer friend of mine and says, why don't you use this, this, uh, this device, the electromagnetic field meter, it had a little meter on it. It wasn't digital. And I said, okay. So uh, the first case I took it on was one in which um, uh, the, the woman was a nurse uh, who had uh, I later found out had been contemplating suicide. She had four children. She was all alone, you know, stretched to the limit, couldn't pay the rent, the whole business, although lived in this big farmhouse. And I noticed that when <clears throat> um, and I don't, th- I'd like to think this isn't such a, so much of a psychic thing as it is some experience and knowing what to look for, the various feelings you get on your skin and all this business. Uh, when uh, What I felt was a, a, a some energy, a presence, whatever you want to call it, sort of coming down this hallway right for me. This thing dropped to zero, this uh, this electromagnetic field meter. And I said, well, zero, shouldn't it like go, you know, do something else? I mean, you know, but then when I got a digital one several years later, the the thing would go into the negative range in what I felt was was the presence of a reverse polarity on an electrical field here. And of course, electrical field is uh, electromagnetic field. I should say just it surrounds an electric current. And I found that you can follow the current, and sometimes it'll just end, just stop, and sometimes it'll you know th- there's no rhyme or reason to it. But when it goes into that negative range, it seemed to me things would happen, and it seemed to me if the polarity is reversed which is kind of unusual, then in, in my terms, it would be exchanging energy between worlds. And, you know, whether, you know, if, if you, as much as you take, put any value in that. But I, I think it's uh, the only way to really use those things. But other than that, the technology has really never had much, much use. As a matter of fact, for me, uh, as a matter of fact, we would get things um, on tape, or, or rather, as, as sort of like the opposite of EBPs, we would get things... Uh, we could hear with the naked ear, but it wouldn't record on tape. Mm-hmm. And I do mean tape, you know, back in Direct the days voice, of cassette tapes. Sure. Exactly. And so, um, I don't know, you, you say that to the kids today, and they're, oh, gee, that's funny. It's like the reverse of EV, EVPs. I said, well, 
Maybe it is. I don't know. But that's. Uh, but other I than that, I, I don't have a lot. Incredible in EVPs too, frankly. Well, when know. you have seven witnesses, yeah. I think part of the part of the problem is that that people today, particularly in this field, and, and this is it, this is in part a function of something you mentioned, and that is that the equipment is now so much more readily available and so much less expensive than it used to be, um, and people like to have some type of physical measure. And I think that this is this has kind of a, been a wrong turn that the paranormal investigation community has taken is this emphasis on physical evidence and physical phenomena because the reality is that, you know, as you said, there is a physical component certainly to some of these cases, particularly poltergeist-type cases. But by and large, these are psychical phenomena. They're not physical phenomena. You know, they, they take place in the mind. Now, the mind may not be limited to the brain, of course, and I don't believe that it is, um, but these are not things, by and large, that can be photographed or directly recorded or measured uh, in any way, although there may be energy fluctuations, as you suggest, associated with these phenomena. But uh, you can't really prove that. There are, too no, many, there are too many variables, too many alternate sources of these types of electromagnetic field anomalies, just yeah. as an example. I have so, to interrupt you because we have to wrap for yet another break, and we'll be okay. right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Benino on CBS News Sky Radio. Stay with us. Thursday is a power-packed day here on the sky. Join us at noon for the I'm Thankful Network. At 1 p.m., it's the Dr. Pat Show. At 4 p.m., Colette Baron-Reed takes the stage for the Colette Baron-Reed Show. The Colette Baron-Reed Show, where intuition, practical spirituality, great advice, a little woo-woo fun, and fabulosity meet. Colette Baron-Reed is an internationally renowned intuitive counselor, educator, and best-selling author who helps others recognize and connect with their own intuition, potential, and purpose. Powerful motivational speaker, charismatic broadcast personality, and acclaimed performer, storyteller, and recording artist, Colette uses her extraordinary spiritual gifts to empower her clients to live a life that is awake and authentic, and to create a reality that is spiritual, deliberate, and meaningful. Call in early. The lines are hot. 248-545-7685. Instant feedback at NewSkyRadio.com. NewSkyRadio. NewSkyRadio.com. New Horizons, no boundaries. Powered by CBS, Yahoo, and Radio.com. Oh, 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 
CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And we were just in the middle of our discussion with Dr. Andrew Nichols about, well, different techniques in... Uh, how to put it, investigating well, paranormal cases. Paranormal investigating and ghosts, and we're going to continue this yes. on other shows because it's just a huge topic. Well, I think we have time probably for one more major question here. And uh, one of the things we're always hearing, of course, and, and one thing that I, I long ago kind of um, began to discount was the idea of residue hauntings, okay? Uh, psychic residuum or whatever you want to call it, uh, hauntings recorded on the environment. Now, it's ironic because I was one of the early advocates of that in the 1970s. I don't know who was listening, but uh, I, I long since kind of um, discounted that. May I ask why um, you give it credibility and, and uh, on what the residue may be recorded? I just that was one of the problems I had. I just didn't. Well, to answer the second question first, I have no idea. I don't think anyone knows. We've explored various possible explanations, including uh, magnetic fields themselves, uh, including various building materials and that sort of thing. Uh, but I tend to think now that it's not a recording in the strict sense. That what it is is a type of retrocognitive ESP experience. In other words, certain objects may may serve as associational um, objects. Uh, to give you an example, in, in normal memory, if you look at the way normal memory functions, uh, if you see an object that's associated with your past, let's say if you see uh, a, 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 a knick-knack that your grandmother left to you before she died, uh, when you see that object and you, and you attend to it, then you automatically think of that person. So in other words, you sort of are creating a connection to an individual that lived in the past. So if you extend that same idea to, uh, to, uh, to ESP, then you may look at an object in a, in a house that you've never been to before, or say an antique rocking chair, and you may, through ESP, associate that object to the individual that owned that object in the past through retrocognition, in other words, through ESP directed into the past, just as precognition gives us information about probabilistic uh, futures. Uh, so I think it, it, it's more of an ESP experience than it is an actual recording. But the recording aspect makes a good analogy when you're explaining it to people. It's as if you're looking at a videotape. And the reason I subscribe to that theory for a lot of hauntings is because a great many ghosts, uh, visual apparitions in particular, are non-interactive. You know, they do not behave as if they're intelligent beings. And quite frequently they're found in locations where it's difficult to imagine why uh, an individual, uh, an intelligent spirit would be wandering around in this particular place for all these years, decades, or sometimes even centuries. 
and the fact that these things do tend to fade away after a period of time, as a recording would do, that uh, there comes a point where the, the whatever the signal is becomes so dissipated that the individual is unable to pick up on it. But, of course, that's going to depend a lot on the, on the sensitivity, on the level of ESP sensitivity of each individual. Some, some people may only pick up on it as a feeling, for example, or a particular emotion, whereas someone else might hear a particular sound, like footsteps or a voice, and, and, a, and a third person might see a visible apparition, just depending on their, on their degree of psychic sensitivity. Well, just if I can make sure we're just about out of time, but uh, many of these experiences that I've investigated have occurred outdoors, and that, that's what made me question. And, you know, obviously, uh, I'm thinking of a particular village, uh, northeast Connecticut, uh, yeah. was active in the late 1700s, early 1800s. The trees were all different. The soil, everything's different, except maybe for the stone walls. Uh, but seven of us heard the same things at the same time and all this business. So that's what made me wonder. But it may not be it may not be a particular object that's imprinted. It mm. may be it may be space. You were talking about multiple dimensions of space. It may be space itself is modified in some way. Well as Einstein said as Einstein said, space was curved, right? Now and I've yeah. actually done that. I've run if you run toward the sound, at least in this case, it it's just over there. Or you run toward that it's just over there. And uh, so maybe uh, maybe Einstein was right about that, but we are flat out of time. Doctor, it's always a great pleasure. Tell us about your book and where people can, can find out more about you. Uh, my book is Ghost Detective, Adventures of a Parapsychologist, uh, which can be bought uh, through your local bookstore on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Uh, certainly hope you will read it. It's uh, semi-autobiographical, but also talks a lot about my investigative methods, um, you can uh, reach me through my website, which is the American Institute of Parapsychology at www.parapsychologylab.com. Very good. Well, thank you, and uh, I will be talking to you real soon. You're definitely going to be a regular guest because we love to talk to you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Have talk a good to you evening. Soon. Okay. All right. All right. So, so, folks, we are, oh, all right. I was getting a little feedback fine. there. So many thanks to our producer, Will Kosnick, and we'll see you next Sunday, February 5th, when my dad and I will welcome back our good friend, Peter Robbins, dis uh, distinguished UFO author and researcher, for a look at the work of the late Bud Hopkins, pioneer of alien abduction research. In the meantime, tune into our New England Drive Time show on WOON 1240 AM and com at 6 p.m. Eastern Time every Monday. You can always get free podcasts of all our shows along with show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. And don't forget, if you live in the southeastern New England area by any chance, even Boston, uh, Ben and I are teaching a course again at Learning Connection in Providence, Rhode Island, Exploring the Paranormal. Check it out. Uh, it starts February 11th, Learn southcoastlearning.org. And we leave you with this quote. Quote, I believe in everything until it's disproved. So I believe in fairies. The myths, dragons, it all exists even if it's in your mind. Who's to say the dreams and nightmares aren't as real as the here and now? And you know who said that? John Lennon. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio.com, and Psychic Radio, PsychicOnAir.com, powered by CBS Radio, AOL, and Yahoo, is unlike any talk radio station, with a mission to improve the world one listener at a time. This is where you can be the star of your own show. Our listeners are truly unique. 
truly interactive and passionate about their world. The Sky and Psychic Radio listeners genuinely care about the environment, social justice, their personal health, and raising people up to live their best life every day. Our motto is New Horizons, No Boundaries. New Age Views, Life Coaching, Psychic Analysis, Alternative Medicine, and Cutting Edge Mind, Body, and Spirit shows can all be found on The Sky and Psychic Radio. Perhaps you have what it takes to join our broadcast family and open mind. A great idea and a passion for enriching lives. Check out all the exciting details by clicking the microphone on our homepage at NewSkyRadio.com or give Lisa Rodman a call at 248-546-9600 to learn just how affordable it can be to host a show. Place to play. 